Good afternoon. We are doing a series on worship, and so I've been reading psalms that have to do with worship, and there are a lot of them. And I had Richard read Psalm 98, and it starts out so pleasant. Sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. And then it goes on to describe some of the marvelous things that God has done, and it says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth, sing praises. And then at the end, it uses a metaphor. uh, What's that called? I don't think it's an anthropomorphism, but creation is going to celebrate God. It says, says, uh, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. So it pictures not just humans celebrating God, but even pictures creation celebrating God. And then it says why they're celebrating God. It says, before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So this psalm starts out, sing praises to God. God is so great. Yes, God is so great. Even the, even the rivers, even the trees are clapping their hands for God. Why are they doing that? Because He's going to come and judge the earth. It's like, whoa! But think about it. That is something to celebrate. You know what's going on in Ukraine right now? Let's just say Russia goes in there and pulverizes that nation and kills millions of people. And let's just say other nations try to step in and stop it and this and that, and you have this whole big mess of innocent lives lost and just tragedy. Another, another part of our history books of just evil that man has done. If, if there was not any justice on the earth that would deal with that, what hope is there... In other words, if you don't believe that there is a higher justice in the universe and we don't step in and bring justice, if justice is not brought, then justice never happens. But we can celebrate because the God that we worship is a God of perfect justice and He is going to right every wrong. He is going to judge the people with equity and that means He's going to deal with wicked rulers who try to destroy other nations, and he's going to deal with sinful people who abuse children, and he's going to deal with thieves, liars, and crooks, and blasphemers. And I could keep going, and all of a sudden, all of us are in that category. And we're like, ah, I'm not celebrating so much anymore. I don't want to be judged with equity. I need mercy. And alas, we continue reading the book and we discover that God has provided a way for us to be reconciled to Him so that His justice has fallen on another, which is Christ. Fully, His anger towards me, towards all those who believe, has been placed on Christ to where He has no anger left for me because of my sin. And Jesus bears the full weight of it all and He says it is finished. 
And he says to all who believe, they have everlasting life. And it is the beauty and wonder of the gospel. So we can celebrate that God is going to judge the world with equity. And we can celebrate that God has judged Christ on our behalf so that he becomes a shelter where we are safe from the judgment of God. Wonderful news. One thing to point out here is that there is a men's breakfast coming up, guys. The end of March, make a mental footnote, jot it down. Uh, We look forward to you joining us. I will speak more of that later as weeks, uh, weeks to come. So we've been reading through this confession, and that is what I would like to do right now. I still haven't found my bifocals. (sighs) I just had hope that I'd find them this week. So I didn't go buy another pair. So I can see my notes with my glasses, but I can't see you, or I can see you, and then my notes are just a big fog. So I could either stand way back here without glasses, and I can see my notes, or I could do this thing off and on the whole time. I haven't decided yet what I'm going to do. I'm going to try without the glasses. All right. This is paragraph 29 of the London Baptist Confession of 1646. And it reads this. All believers are a holy and sanctified people. And that sanctification is a spiritual grace of the new covenant and an effect of the love of God manifested in the soul whereby the believer presseth after a heavenly and evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his new covenant hath prescribed to them. Now, as I say this a lot, these these ideas are not just formulated by some committee back in in the 17th century. These are based on Scripture and they formed these dense paragraphs with much meditation on the Scripture and much careful thought. And what I like to do is read some of the texts to where they got these. And as you know, I color-coded them. But as I was doing it today, I thought, man, I hope these people don't think this is some kind of puzzle that they have to figure out which one I'm reading. I tried to color it so it's helpful for you, not more confusing for you, but no one's complained yet, so I'm just going along with it. 1 Corinthians 1-2, Paul says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And you see that, the sanctified people part is in red? Okay, good. 1 Peter 2-9, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 1 John 4.16 Quickly, your eyes find the green, and then it sees the green up at top, but it's not as clear as it is on my screen. Sorry. He says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, 
and God abides in him. And then finally, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Well, I would normally have you turn to a certain place in your Bible, but I have a PowerPoint for you, and I've got a lot of scriptures to cover with you, so if you want to open your Bible, you can, but we're going to jump around a lot. We have been going through the Gospel of Luke, and every time we get to the end of a chapter, I like to take a break from Luke and preach a few weeks on some other subject And for whatever reason, God brought the circumstances around to where I really thought this would be a good thing to teach on, which is, what is worship? And how do we know what we're supposed to do as worshipers? And this is the second sermon out of three. All right, let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are great. And you are greatly to be praised, as the psalmist wrote. And you are to be praised for your great love. You are to be praised for your great mercy and your great patience. And you are to be praised for your great justice. And we do thank you, Lord, that as the world rages with different kinds of hostility and evil in secret and on the world stage that you will judge the nations with equity and that everything in the end is going to be made righteous. And we praise you for that. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has come to be our substitute who has come to stand in the place of judgment for sinners so that He absorbs the wrath of God that was due us and we are given His perfect righteousness that He has earned. And our response is that we worship. And so, Lord, thank You. Thank You for this gathering here today. We are very weak in many ways. Both speaker and hearer, we fall short, we are inadequate, we need your help in everything, and that includes when we come to church. And so I pray for your grace, Lord, to preach clearly and wisely with the power of the Holy Spirit, and I pray for the hearers that as they receive this message, that their mind would not be lost in the future or in the past, but Lord, that it would be here and that they would be present and that they would be taught these things that You have handed down to us for the ages, that we might hear them and believe them and obey them. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Your holy church 
that is there and that is set apart for your glory. We ask, Father, for your grace and blessing upon them. We ask, Lord, that you would strengthen them and give them a kind of boldness that they would see you more clearly, that they would have a great supernatural confidence that they are trusting in you and that they are abiding in your will, whether you have them remain or whether you have them flee that place or whether you have them defending that country. I pray for your people, O God, that you would bless them and strengthen them. And I do pray, God, for this entire conflict that you would have mercy, Lord. We know that there will always be these kinds of things all the way to the end. And yet, Lord, we can petition you to remember mercy. We pray, God, for righteousness. We pray, God, for the safety of the people. We pray, God, that this would be resolved peacefully. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2015, a parachurch organization in Australia put together a worship conference called Innovate. It was a conference that focused on how the modern church must innovate if we want to engage the culture and be salt and light in the 21st century. The keynote speakers were not those you would expect to find at a conference on Christian worship. None were worship leaders, and very few were pastors. Consider, as I read these names, note their expertise, their area of expertise. There was Mark McCrindle, social researcher, Chris Bailey, filmmaker, Lucy Holmes, entertainer and radio host, Lyle Shelton, Christian lobbyist, and Steve Fogg, social media strategist. This conference focused on how the church needs to keep up with the times, how we as the church must remain relevant in a media-saturated culture. And so the sessions were about how the church needs to adapt to our ever-changing environment and that we must reconsider how we do church for this modern era. Churches need to have a strong presence on social media, they say. They need to understand their target demographic. They need to invest more in their music and audiovisual department. They need to explore the use of drama and film. Churches need to market their brand. Put plainly, the Church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century needs to innovate. Now, that's the name they chose for the conference, but the very definition of the word is interesting because to innovate is to, quote, make changes in something established, especially by introducing new methods, ideas, or products. Now, this is not the only conference where these ideas have been proposed. This kind of push for churches to adapt to the culture has been going on for decades now. 
But the question must be asked, when it comes to worship in the modern church, should we seek to change or adapt or innovate? Do we as the church need to keep up with advances in social media, technology, and film to be relevant in the 21st century? Are we being led by God to innovate when it comes to how we worship? Now, this is a three-part series, as I mentioned, and last week's sermon was about what worship isn't. And I walked us through several texts from the Old Testament where we saw that there is a right way to worship and a wrong way to worship. So we were reminded that not all worship is acceptable to God, and you can be as sincere as the day is long, and if you are not doing it according to the way that God has prescribed, He will not receive it. And I took us through the Bible last week, all the way back to Cain and Abel, where we saw in Genesis 4 that this first murder, this this first uh, offspring of the original couple resulted in a murder and that was over worship and it becomes the first instance of a biblical theme we see throughout which is on true and false worship. Then we consider the Ten Commandments where we saw that the first four commandments centered around proper worship. You must have no other gods. You must not use idols or images in worship. You must not blaspheme, or I included misrepresent God. That is also blasphemy. And we must set aside one day in seven for rest and worship. Then we saw the, that God rejected the worship of the Israelites and the golden calf, even though they called this idol Yahweh. We considered the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, And they offered strange fire, or as the ESV says, unauthorized fire, meaning God did not tell them to to approach Him in that way, and they decided they were going to do it anyway. And they were the ones who were incinerated, not the sacrifices. And of course, there's Jesus confronting the Pharisees, saying that you're too busy with your traditions to care about what God has said. So, I was arguing last week that all of this was showing us, and there were other examples I gave, that there is a way that God receives worship and that there is a way that God does not receive worship and the key is it's got to be based on what He has told us. In other words, there is worship that's according to God and there is worship that is according to man. Worship is God's idea, and because of this, only He can define it, and only He can dictate how we are to do it. He has not left these things shrouded in mystery, whether in the Old or New Testaments. And I mentioned very briefly at the end of last week's sermon that there is a name for this idea that we worship according to what God has told us, and it is called the regulative principle of worship. And I was looking for a very short and concise definition for this, and this is the best one I found. The regulative principle of worship states, the corporate worship of God is to be founded upon specific directions of Scripture. 
So this answers the question, what kind of worship does God prescribe as we gather together as a church? We are not to make it up as we go. We are not to change our worship according to different trends and fads in the culture. We are to rely on God to tell us what he would have, and it is not left up to us to innovate. Perhaps the greatest theologian of the Reformation, John Calvin, expressed it this way. God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. I think that's another concise and yet very clear description of what I'm saying. If you go back to the Protestant Reformation, we all know that the main issue was justification by faith. In fact, you know, you think of the Reformation, you're immediately drawn to that. What was that all about? It was about justification by faith. But the more you read about the Reformation, you discover it was also about returning to biblical worship. The Reformers were very precise on getting this right and making sure that we are doing it the way that God told us to do it and not the way tradition or culture informs us. So they were looking back to discover what biblical worship was. It seems that in our day, a lot of modern churches are looking ahead or they're looking out. They want to see what the the latest trends are, the latest style of music, the latest fads. We are to always be looking back to what God has said in His Word. Now, we are a confessional church here, meaning we are not an island by ourselves and we have a very unique doctrine that no other churches have. We are part of a very long tradition of Reformed churches and we hold to a confession that best summarizes what our church believes on all kinds of subjects. It's the London Baptist Confession of 1689. And in paragraph 22 of that confession states this, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by His own revealed will that He may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, God has told us to worship and we do it that way. Now, this does not mean, I'm talking about the regulative principle, that does not mean that the church in every place, in every generation, looks exactly the same. We all have differing influences and traditions, for better or for worse. And these form and shape how we interact with the world and how we even interact with God's Word. So a worship service in Africa might look very different than a worship service in Scotland. Just based on their geography, based on their history, based on their cultural influences. And that's not a bad thing. But the main parts of what God tells us worship is have to be there. So the regulative principle does not mean that we can't have any differences among churches. It doesn't mean we cannot use teaching aids like PowerPoint because the Bible never says use PowerPoint. 
but it does require that there must be teaching. It does not mean we cannot use a hymnal or that we can only use projector or that we can only sing hymns or contemporary songs, but it does require that there must be singing. So uh, hopefully that makes sense. The main aspects of worship remain untouched, but there is a freedom within those categories for differences. Dr. Derek, Derek Thomas, theologian, pastor, says this, It is important to realize that the regulative principle as applied to public worship frees the church from acts of impropriety and idiocy. We are not free, for example, to advertise that performing clowns will mime the Bible lesson at next week's Sunday service. Yet it does not commit the church to a cookie-cutter liturgical sameness. Within an adherence to the principle, there is enormous room for variation in matters that Scripture does not specifically address. So, our, bro- our brothers at Grace Bible Church in Park, for example, Errol always says, would you stand for the Scripture reading? They, they all stand and they get their Bibles out and start reading. For some reason, our tradition in this church is we sit for the Bible reading. Does the Bible say one way or the other whether we should sit or whether we should stand? No. What does it say? There should be Bible reading. Okay? How much of a church service is devoted to prayer may differ. How much scripture is read may differ. What kinds of songs are sung may differ. But the point is, certain categories must remain in place that God has commanded, and other ideas that have not been prescribed must not be. Dr. Thomas continues... Thoughts? Nope, didn't make a slide for that one. Oh, that's because I decided to skip that one. Okay. Okay, so what are those things that God prescribes for us? What does worship according to the Word of God look like? And I just put a list together that Scripture emphasizes from Genesis to Revelation. I would have loved it if God had a chapter that was bullet points, you know, like that's how we think. Just like, just give me a list of things and we'll do them. He did not read, uh, write his word that way. And so we are left to search the scriptures to discover these things for ourselves. And I thought I would just put together an outline based on our worship service and how we do it. So that you can walk away from here saying, okay, I know why we do the things that we do. So what does God require when we come together? First of all, to participate in the worship of God corporately, there must be singing. This is not a new custom or practice. It goes all the way back to the time of the Exodus. The first time we see people worshiping the Lord in song is when God brought the Israelites through the Red Sea. Do you remember that? Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. 
The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. So their singing was a response to God's great deliverance of them. And because we too are a people who have been delivered from slavery, we too worship God in song. Now there's other scattered examples throughout Israel's history between Moses and David, but really David becomes the greatest example of a believer worshiping God through song. David was not only Israel's king, but he was their worship leader. And so... In one scene, the ark is brought to Jerusalem and he worships God with song. And this becomes Psalm 105. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Now notice, we are commanded to sing to God. David wrote many, many songs, half of what you have in the Psalter, in the middle of your Bible. And as king, he even appointed men who were going to participate in Israel's worship. 1 Chronicles 6.31. I just noticed the font changed. I don't know why. These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they performed their service according to their order. Some chapters later in chapter 23, it says that 4,000 Levites were set apart for playing musical instruments in the worship of God. 4,000 So David took worship of God very seriously and he made sure there was singing and there were instruments. And he thinks this is so vital to our worship as a church, he gave us a hymnal right in the Bible. That middle book of the Bible is the book of Psalms, which means songs. And there are a hundred and fifty of them that we can utilize in worship. Now, Tragically, we don't know how the original melodies of those songs went, but some churches do their best to make those songs singable. And at the very least, we see the importance of song in worship. God thought this was very important. We have Old Testament examples. I could give you dozens and dozens more of other believers worshiping God in song. Now, some churches say because God only gave us the Psalms, that's all that we should use. Now, that's like people who are really regulative principle people, right? So, does the, does the Bible prescribe only the Psalms for us, or can we use other kinds of songs? I think we can use other kinds of songs because in Colossians 3.16, Paul says to the church, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
So that seems to me that God is speaking to his church and saying, when you are gathered, this is what I want you to do. And he mentions psalms and hymns, and then a more general category called spiritual songs. So this makes me think that God gives us some license as to how we want to express ourselves in song. Now again, this might be a very different experience in Africa or China than in Southern California. There can be variation in style and custom, but what we do as we participate in song should at least do two things. It should exalt the Lord and it should edify the people. And I even have a scripture for this. The Corinthian church, you know they were a mess. They were doing all these things wrong. Paul writes a letter to correct them and he says this in 14.26. When you come together, each one has a hymn a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. He says, let all things be done for building up. New King James Version says, for edification. So the music we sing should not only extol the attributes of God, but it should build us up as we think about God. Jesus says to worship the Lord with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So we don't want to turn our brain off and just sing a repetitive lyric over and over and over and over, as some modern songs do. We want songs that cause us to marvel at what God has done. We don't want to just sing songs about how God makes me feel. I do not like worship songs about how God makes me feel. In the car when I'm driving, I don't mind singing that. When we come together for corporate worship, I don't want to sing about me. I want to sing about Him. And so we are very particular about the songs that we choose. Some older songs, some newer songs. But what, do, what are the requirements for them? They have to exalt God and they have to edify the church. So, singing is part of the worship that God requires. Secondly, Scripture reading Because God has spoken in His Word, we want to hear from Him. Now, Exodus 24 is probably the first recorded instance of corporate worship in the Bible. And this is what we see in verse 7. Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. Prior to this, God tells Moses, I want you to write these things down, and I want you to read it to the people. And in the next generation, I want them to read it, and every so often, I want them to read it, and read it, and read it. Again, before entering the promised land, Deuteronomy 31, verse 11, he says, When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that He will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. 
They enter the promised land. Joshua is the new leader. He takes over. Joshua 8.34. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. We see this again and again and again. The prophets are bringing the word of God. King Josiah discovers the word of God and makes sure it's read to all the people. God judges the nation. They're sent into Babylonian captivity. He releases them after 70 years and they return to Scripture reading. Nehemiah 8, verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it facing the square before the water gate. Listen to this. From early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and all the ears and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law now imagine me reading the bible to you for like 6 or 8 hours <laughs> they didn't have pocket bibles you guys i mean this was the word of god to them and they were like captured by it I think we're so spoiled by having all of these, all of this access to the scripture. It's just, we just don't appreciate it like we should. Jesus comes, of course, his entire ministry is a call to hear the word of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When we get into the New Testament epistles and it talks about New Testament worship, Paul writes to Pastor Timothy, gives him instructions on how to lead the congregation. And he says this in 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So we read the Scripture because we want you to know what God has said. In fact, I was thinking about it recently. It's the most perfect part of our worship service. Because I could teach things that are wrong, Uh, We could sing certain lyrics maybe that are not totally right. I mean, I don't know, theoretically. But when someone gets up to read the Scripture and that's all they do is read it, that's like the most perfect part. This is just, this is what God has said. And before Christians had their own Bibles, that's how they heard the Word of God. Christians would gather together, picture throughout the church ages, 200, 500, 1200, and someone would have some of the scriptures and they would hear the word of God when they gathered. They didn't all go home and have their own Bibles. Thirdly, what are we to do when we come together? We are to pray. Is the volume okay? Seems a little loud to me. It's not too loud? Good. God desires that when his people come together, there is prayer. The Bible records many of the prayers of the people of God. Entire chapters are written that are prayers of godly people throughout Old and New Testaments. You've got Moses and Hannah and David and Solomon and some of the prophets, and you even have Jesus. Prayer is how we communicate to God. 
If there is no prayer, there is no true worship. Prayer is a petitioning of God for help, but prayer is also relational communication with the divine. So we don't come together on Sunday and formally have a prayer meeting where that's all that we do, but our gathering will always include prayer because prayer is part of worship. Jesus, quoting Isaiah, said, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Jesus taught us to pray our Father, not my Father. Assuming that we are going to gather together as His disciples and pray together as we gather. The early church was marked by their dependence in prayer. I'll just do these quickly. Acts 1.14, all these were... All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 6.4 But we elders will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Acts... um, See, I do this. I make changes. Sorry. Acts 2.42 They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Paul wrote letters to the churches asking them for prayer. So he was assuming that the churches were praying as part of their worship. When Paul tells Timothy how to organize the church and what their meetings should look like, he says, 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul instructed them to get together and he wanted them to to pray. James 5.16, he says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So, this assumes, you know, we're not all living in the same house. I mean, this assumes we're going to gather together at repetitive times weekly and pray for each other. So, prayer is actually a form of worship. We tend to think of singing as the worship part of our service, but really all of it is worship, including our praying. And I threw this one after the fact, but in Revelation, listen that John, has, sees, he sees true worship in heaven. And in Revelation 8.3, it says, Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So here's a picture of heaven. There is worship. There's the living creatures. There's the elders and all the rest. This bizarre picture we see. And the angel brings incense and it's prayers of the saints. Like these prayers are worship ascending up to God. And then it says again in the next verse, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So when we come together, there must be prayer. The fourth, fourth thing we must have as part of our worship service is preaching. We do not believe that God spoke in times past, thousands of years ago, but that He does not speak anymore today. We do believe He speaks today, and we believe He does it through the proclamation of His Word. So it's not like we're just dusting off this archaic book and it's like, yeah, that's way back then, but we really have no voice of God today. 
The voice of God is the Scriptures when they are opened up and when they are preached. That is why the Bible is so central to our knowing God and so central to our worship service. He doesn't need to send us more prophets. He doesn't need to give us audible voices in our head where we think that that's God's voice. He, with, in conjunction with His Holy Spirit, directs His church and guides us in our lives through His Word. And preaching is the primary vehicle God uses to speak to His church. Have you ever heard a sermon that has totally changed your life? Any sermon on the radio, in this church, I mean, you went to some event. I've had sermons that have changed the trajectory of my life in some ways. Because God was speaking to me. Maybe you heard a sermon and it changed your vocation. Maybe you heard a sermon and uh, God stirred your heart to be involved in some kind of ministry. God speaks and we hear and that is how He guides us. If you remove the preaching of God's Word, we are offering up praise to Him but we are not getting the kind of leading and instruction we need from our Father. We are raising our voices, but we are never hearing His. Now, how does this differ from what we saw earlier with Scripture reading? Again, 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, but then notice he says, to exhortation, to teaching. So, preaching is pressing the truth of God into the hearts of the people rather than just reading it. So, I come up here every week and my job is to persuade you to obey the Bible. That's what I do. I am here to persuade you. I am here to exhort. I am here to build you up. I don't just get up here and read the text and sit down. I teach about it, I explain it, I illustrate it, and I try in some way to apply it. So, preaching and teaching is a more focused study. We need to slow down and, sp and, and spend time considering what God has said. It's good for Richard to get up and read Psalm 98, but a sermon on Psalm 98 is going to be more helpful to us because it's going to be explained more thoroughly. It should be analyzed. It should be meditated upon. It should be illustrated. Jesus did that. Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field. That is an illustration. I was driving on the freeway the other day. I was on the, I was on the 126 out here by Piru. I don't have an illustration. But you know what I'm saying? That would be an illustration. And I would make a point that goes back to my text. I don't have one for you, but you get the idea. So, preaching is God speaking through His Word and in a, the context of a congregation. And there are modern illustrations we can use. But it is what he does to expose and to rebuke and to encourage and to comfort and to remind us of the truth. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1, Preach 
the word. No, sorry. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. Timothy, preach the word. How does the church remain relevant in the 21st century? How do we weather all of the cultural storms and everything that's going on in our lives? The same way the church has always done it. God speaks into our lives through the preaching of the word, and we obey, and over weeks and months and years, through this process called sanctification, he is transforming us gradually over time. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In John 17, in his high priestly prayer, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How are we sanctified? By being under the authority of God's word. How are the Lord's sheep to be fed? By feeding upon God's word, not only daily in our Bible reading, but every time we come together It is central to our worship. It has been said that when we worship, we read the Bible, we sing the Bible, we pray the Bible, and we preach the Bible. Now those are the main elements that every worship service should have, but I will include a few others that are important for the church to participate in, yet not necessarily part of every worship service. In other words, if you didn't have these elements, you could still have worship, but these are very important and not to be neglected. First one in this other short list is baptism. These will go much quicker. Jesus says in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So part of our mission as a church includes baptism. Now, I can't think of one time in the Scriptures that baptism was part of a worship service. Um, We see people being baptized. We see the church baptizing people. There's not a specific connection that I can think of as it being part of a worship service. Um, But I list this as something very important and I do not think it would be wrong if it was part of our service because Jesus tells us in the same breath of making disciples and teaching to baptize. Another thing that is very important but I don't think is mandatory for every time we worship is communion or the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three and 24, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in memory or in remembrance of me. So the scripture never tells us how often we are to do this. Some churches do it every Sunday. Some churches like ours do it once a month. Some churches do it once a year. Can you believe that? 
That's always surprised me. But we are not told the frequency of how often we celebrate this, just that we are to do it. So I think God gave us the freedom to choose the frequency of it, and that means I think we can have worship and not include that, but it's still very important. Another one that someone might argue is part of worship is giving. Giving was a major part of Israel's worship in the Old Testament. I don't see that as changing in the New Testament. Um, While we don't tithe anymore, the 10% like in the Old, we are still to give freely and generously as an act of sacrifice to the Lord. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So I'm not to be up here and impressing upon you, guilting you, making you feel bad about giving. You are to give from your own redeemed heart to God cheerfully. And I think there's evidence that this was done on the Lord's Day. Um, 1 Corinthians 16, 1, Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So he was telling the churches, gather church when you get together once a week on Sundays, get your, get your, get your offerings together. We don't pass the plate here. We do have an offering box in the back. But I think someone could make a strong case that giving is an important part of our worship as a church. Now finally, this last one actually does need to be part of every worship service because it undergirds all of the, what we do here, and that is fellowship. This is the last one, by the way, if you're taking notes. Acts 2.42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, fellowship is on every page of the New Testament letters. If we are to come together to worship God and honor Him, we must love one another. Jesus says, if you have a gift to bring to the altar, don't bring it if you're not reconciled to your brother. First go get reconciled, and then you can bring your gift. In other words, Being reconciled and loving one another is very important to God. We call these the one another's, and there are a ton of them. This is not even all of them. It's just all that I felt like I could fit on a slide. You know them. You read through the New Testament, and it's do this to one another, and that to one another, and this to one another. And this is an important part of the worship service because this is pleasing to God And it is how um, we love God and love our neighbor as ourself. So what does God require when we gather on Sundays for worship? Actually, let me make one quick note. Do you know what's not prescribed as part of our worship? Evangelism. Evangelism. Now, we are to be evangelistic as a church, 
we are to gather together and get all fired up and want to share the gospel with the unbelieving world, but we have zero examples of the church in the Bible being used as a place for evangelism. So what happens is you have well-meaning Christians who want to reach the lost, and they turn their Sunday service, which is meant for the people of God to be equipped and edified, and they say, we're just going to make this a gospel message every single Sunday and it's about the unbeliever and it's more focused on the empty seats than the full ones and so they all of a sudden unknowingly are turning the church into something that it is not. It is not a center for evangelism. It is a center for Christians to come into interaction with the living God and with other believers to be built up and edified and then we go and do evangelism but when we turn the church into a worship, or a, when we exchange the worship of God as prescribed to a place where evangelism is done, uh, we take ourselves off course. Now, I try to include the gospel in every single sermon I give, whether it's through my prayers or whether it's through a brief devotional when I first come up here. I want to talk about Christ crucified. But that's very different from okay, we're going to focus everything we do on Sundays for the unbeliever. I think that leads churches off course. What does God require when we gather on Sundays for worship? Well, we are to do as He has told us to do. Which means we do not need to innovate. We just need to obey what He has told us to do. Amen? Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You that You have given us such plain instructions on worship that we are to sing and we are to pray and we are to read the Scriptures and we are to preach the Word, that we are to love one another, that we are to even... uh, have communion and give our offerings and we are to do it to the glory of God. I pray, Lord, that we would take these things seriously, that these things would um, remind us that you have given us everything we need and we do not need to go and come up with new ideas. We do not need to incorporate extra biblical concepts We do not need to add to what you have told us to do, Lord. We just need to do it. And may it build us up and may it mature us in Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen.